uh, are old enough to remember sword drills. Oh, is that just a Steinbeck thing? Me and Bev are the only ones? Madeline? That's it? Okay. Uh, basically, that's what we're doing this morning. Uh, I, I warned Becca when she got here. I said, grab my notes, and there's about 37 passages we're looking at this morning. That's not quite true, but there's a lot. So we're going to have them on the screen. If you want to flip there, if you're fast enough, uh, by all means, feel free. If you are cheating and using your phone, that's okay too. Uh, I'm just kidding. That's not cheating. It's okay. Um, but we're, gonna, we're basically going to hit little sections to kind of answer two different questions that were asked uh, as we lead up to this. So if, if you are visiting this morning, this summer we took a break from our series through 1 Corinthians, and it's, it's just random questions. Random makes it sound bad. They're, they're good questions. They're just all over the map. Uh, just different things that people have wondered, passages that they've uh, wondered about, a topic that they've been uncertain about. What, what does the Bible teach about this? And so we've been all over the place this summer. And we're kind of nearing the end uh, of this. So next week, Jim Houston is going to come. He is not answering a question, at least not that he's aware of. So, um, so we're going to do one more this week and then perhaps one in a, c- a couple of weeks coming. But this This two-part question, I guess, that we're going to deal with this morning, this first one came in right at the very beginning. And I left it for the end, not because it's super easy or super short or something like that, but because I thought, this will tie in well with another question. I'm just certain of it. And, and it didn't for a long time, and so I just kind of waited and waited and waited. And then, and then somebody asked another question where it tied in perfectly, and, and so I thought, man, let's deal with both of these at the same time this morning. So uh, the first question that was asked is simply this, is there anything good in us other than God? In other words, mankind, do we have any amount of goodness in us at all apart from God? The second question that was asked, well, a few weeks ago, a little bit of context, a few weeks ago, I preached um, on how to interact with those in our lives who are living in a way that goes against Scripture. In other words, how do we hold high truth and yet love our neighbor as ourselves? And so we were talking about that, and we got to this passage in Matthew 5, 43, 48. And, and verse, 30, verse 48 ends by saying this, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. At that point, I made a comment, and I said, I don't have time to deal with that verse, because that wasn't the question, but if you want to ask that question, you can. Well, that week in my email, here comes that question. So I guess you got to be careful what you say when you're preaching. But as I was thinking about that question, man, these two are actually perfectly uh, tied together, even though they might not sound like it. Is there anything good in us other than God, and why does, the, why does Jesus say that you have to be perfect? So I thought, man, let's, let's look at these and tie them together. But the first question we're going to deal with first, because we're going to try and give a biblical framework for it, and then you'll see where we're going with the second question. So before we turn to Scripture this morning, I just want you to think about this. From a cultural standpoint, what is the narrative that is taught about humanity? Are we generally good? Are we not good? And again, we're, we're going outside the Bible for a moment here, and we're just trying to think what our culture teaches us. As you do a quick search uh, on this topic, is, is the predominant theory that comes across in our culture right now is that humans are basically innately good, but capable of doing evil things at times. 
And as I was kind of pondering that and thinking about this, you know, it's really interesting. God has put this week things in order as such that basically I've been able to go to several sources, no matter what our Bible study was, no matter what the topic was, because it just, it was so concise. And in our men's group this week, we were studying through Ephesians 2, which we're going to read in a moment. But there was a, in the video series, the the presenter, quoted something from a famous American psychologist named Carl Rogers. His conclusion about the human condition is this. He writes, in our hearts, we are basically good, and our main problem is that we have just lost touch with our inner goodness. The problem is that societal structures have obscured this. It's pretty much the common belief held in our world. We're taught in the TV shows we watch, in the social media craze that we live in, the schools that we go to, and so on, that people are basically good, and even though they make some mistakes, overall, they're good. In parenting books, and and even into child psychology, there's this belief that at the very heart of things, that kids always want to please their parents. Nobody laughed? Okay. When you become a parent, that type of mindset goes, really? I'm not arguing that often they want to. And even when kids are acting out in misbehavior, sometimes that's a call for attention, a call for some kind of deeper relationship with parents. I'm not arguing any of that, but that, they, that children always want to please just goes against everything that we learn when we have a newborn child. Is what we learn is that they want to do what they want to do. And as we grow up, We learn we want to do what we want to do. And when we move out on our own, we then learn I can do what I want to do. And then three months later, we go, I can't anymore because I don't have any money left. Right? Like this is just a progression of what happens in our hearts. And so what Scripture teaches, and we're going to go to a few verses to do this, is that not only is mankind not necessarily good generally speaking, but actually the opposite is true. But just before we read, I also want to ask this question. Is if we buy into the logic of basically speaking, humans are good, then why is there such evil? Why do we treat each other the way that we do? Just last week, we looked at uh, the, the topic of kind of residential school systems, how we should respond to that. And what we've seen, if we study any amount of history, is that humans are incredibly violent. We want to conquer because we think we're better than the next group. Whatever that division might be, we think we're better and so we conquer. How does that make us, generally speaking, good when we hurt our brothers and sisters so badly? Then the other aspect of that is then who gets to determine what is good or, or what is good enough is maybe the question to ask. I once heard somebody say it this way, is how many times do you have to tell a lie to become a liar? Right? Like, where's, where's that line? Right? We prob- none of us would probably classify ourselves as, man, I'm a, I'm a pretty pathological liar. Right? We wouldn't say that. Maybe I shouldn't say pathological. That implies something else. But none of us would say, I'm a liar. And yet, how often do we lie? How often do we stretch the truth so that we get what we want? How often do we not quite tell the whole truth because we deem that that person doesn't need to hear it? Where's that line? Who gets to determine that? And if that's just an arbitrary thing, then it is easy to just say, well, people are basically good, but what is good? Well, I don't really know. And so then we end up in this illogical argument where we're not sure how to define any of these things. Well, Paul writes this in Ephesians 2. 
He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Paul's view is is simple. We were dead. We had nothing, nothing good in us that deserved saving. And in a matter of fact, that really is what the heart of the gospel is. Is that even though I'm not worthy of being saved, God loves me and says, I want to save you. Not because of how good I am. It's not as though God looks down and goes, man, Greg, he's pretty good. Right? Lots of this or that. Or, or he looks at you and he says, There's that, that's a person with skill. Where did we get all that from anyways? From him in the first place. It's not as though he looks down at us and goes, man, that's a person that's worthy. The book of Psalms, we read this in chapter 14, verse 3. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good. Not even one. That's pretty clear again. Not one. Later on in Psalm 53, David writes, They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. What does it say? Is it there? Not even one. A few weeks ago, we looked at a question about the law. What is the role of the law? And as we look through the Old Testament, We find that the law exists ultimately to show us that we desperately need a Savior because we are incapable of earning our own way to heaven. We are incapable of making it on our own because somehow we think that we have done enough. So often the argument is, well, well, that that neighbor of mine or that person that I know, they've done some really awful things, but, but I haven't. But the simple reality is you always find someone who's done worse things than you And you'll always find someone who's done better things than you. And so then where's the line? Who's in the middle? Who's the outlier? Well, the scriptures write this perfectly for us. James writes this to us in 2 verse 10. He says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. You're either good or you're not. You're either innocent or you're guilty. And James says it doesn't matter if you haven't killed somebody. If you've told a lie, you're guilty of the law holistically. And so you stand condemned. And so when we look at our own hearts, and and the more that, uh, we talked about this at our men's group as we were going through this text in Ephesians, is the more we evaluate our own hearts and look at what's within us, the more that we actually see there's pride and jealousy and anger and all these things that come out of us. And, And it's only when we submit to God that we actually put those things aside and actually live the way that is kind, that is loving, that is gracious. The more we evaluate us, the more awful our hearts seem, but actually there's some really good news in that because the more gracious that God is. You probably, most of you know this verse, you heard it in Sunday school growing up, Romans 3.23, what does it say? Don't put it up. Aww. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. On our own, there is nothing good. But if you go back to Ephesians 2, is the first three verses are the negative side of it. Here's the reality. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. But he says, in, you, in which you used to walk. 
There's good news coming, and verses 4 and 5 says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We talked on Wednesday morning with our men at this, this but God, maybe the biggest but in all of Scripture. Is here's the reality. Your heart is filled with nothing good but, but God loves you. And because of his rich mercy, and, and notice it almost sounds redundant, but notice because of the great love with which he loved us has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with my goodness, my abilities, my talents, my skills, whatever I think. It has to do with the love with which he loved me. He made us alive together. Jesus died on the cross, paying the penalty for our wicked hearts. And here's a theological term for us. He has imputed his righteousness to us. That means he, in, in, in living the perfect righteousness life that he lived, he gives it to us on our behalf so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sinfulness. He sees God's righteousness covering us. It's been given to us on our behalf even though we couldn't earn it, couldn't do anything good apart from God. The Bible explains further, and we've been talking about this over the last number of weeks with some of these questions Not only is our sin forgiven, but we're made new and we're given the Holy Spirit. We become a new creation. We now have the capacity to live in a good way because the Holy Spirit indwells us. He is inside of us. And when I submit to Christ, when I say, your will, not mine, be done, then all of a sudden what comes out of me is the very thing in which God wants in the first place. That I would love others, that I would love him, that I would care for others that I would treat them the way that God wants them to be treated and not the way that I want to be treated. We talked about this in in the week about the law, is now that we're given the Holy Spirit, we are actually capable of doing all kinds of good. In fact, Ephesians 2 talks about the power that is within you to do that good. But it's not about your power, it's about His power within you so that we wouldn't become arrogant, so Ephesians 2 continues on over and over by saying, it is by what that you have been saved? Grace has nothing to do with what you deserve, but it's been given of God so that you have nothing to boast in. Paul says, I will boast in my weaknesses all the more because it actually elevates what God has done in me. The problem, of course, exists when we get to a passage like Romans 7 where we find out that while we're new and there's this new creation in us and we are capable of living the way that God has intended, sometimes we have this fight internally, right? They, they depict it in the old cartoons as what? The angel on one shoulder, the little devil on the other shoulder, and they argue, right? And then whoever wins, that's how that person responds. You ever notice whoever, who usually wins in the cartoons? Usually it's the devil that wins, right? And then they do something, and then we as children laugh because it's hilarious because, you know, something funny happened. But there's actually some terribly deep insight into that moment where we see our own sin nature. We go, I want that. I want to do this one thing. It'll bring, it'll build me up. It'll give me meaning. It'll give me purpose. And it's so self-centered. 
And Paul talks about that in Romans 7 where he says, I know what I should do and I, and I even know what I want to do and yet sometimes I do what I don't even want to do. And I would say that's an argument that I have every single morning when I wake up and I open scripture and I spend some time with God in prayer. God, would you help me just ignore my own sinful nature today and follow after you? Would you give me the strength in your spirit to do what is right and what is good and to not desire that which is evil? I think we all fight that and we all will for the rest of our earthly lives. But praise the Lord, we have the Holy Spirit. We don't have to give in to living a selfish, sinful life anymore. We are equipped to live a life that God has called us to. So to answer that first question, is there anything good in us? No, nothing apart from God. And that's why the good news of the gospel is so good. Because he loves you. And he wants to bring you into relation with him, with him and equip you uniquely. Ephesians says it this way, is that you were given a spiritual gift once you have become a partner with Christ for the edification of the saints so that you can serve others, so that you can get involved in community and work together for the good of what God is calling of us to do. There's a song that says it's not good news, it's the best news ever. And that's the reality. So, back now to the second question. And again, the reason that I went, this first question is to create this biblical framework for the depravity of man, really our, our true standing before God apart from him. And then it, how the Holy Spirit works in us. So then we get to Matthew 5.48. We get to this idea of being perfect. So, so let's turn there because we're going to spend a couple of minutes here. This specific verse, verse 48, is one that is, is really important that we understand something that I always try and talk about is context. Not just the context of just these verses, but going back a little bit further, going ahead, seeing the narrative as a whole and understanding what is Scripture trying to teach me holistically here, not just isolating one verse and trying to understand it in a vacuum because Scripture isn't written in a vacuum. And so we're going to read 43 to 48, but then we're going to actually go back a little bit. So 43 to 48, it says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be the so, so, pardon me, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect. What I think this verse, verse 48, should remind us back to is something that's said over and over and older in the Old Testament. It says this, is be holy as I am holy. Right from the beginning, God calls the people, he calls Abraham, he calls this Jewish nation, and he says, you are to stand out, you are to represent me to the world so that they see my glory, my goodness, and they want to respond and they will be entered into that family. God's plan was always to bring all nations into him. Using this one group of people, they were to stand out, they were to be different. And isn't that what the text is saying here to us in verse 43 to 48? Don't just blend in and live how others live. 
Don't just be kind to those who are be kind to you. Go way beyond that because as you understand God's love for you, even though you don't deserve it, you as a byproduct should give that love to others who you deem don't deserve it. That's how you're to treat people. So your enemies, those who hate you, those who persecute you, pray for them. Love them. Care for them. Those who, who wrong you, those who hurt you, is try and extend to them grace and love and mercy because that's what God has extended to us. The difference between the Old Testament where it says, be holy as I am holy, and the New Testament where it says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, and I've said this already, is now we have the Holy Spirit and we're actually equipped to do what God has called us to do. Whereas in the Old Testament, the point of it was to show you desperately need a Savior. So pay attention for someone who will come and who will live the way that I have called you to live. As an example, to forgive your sins, to show you that there is a better way. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, Paul reminds us of this. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. In other words, how you live now matters because you're an ambassador of Jesus. So just like the Jewish people in the Old Testament were a representative to the nations about what God is like is the same is true of the church now. We are to show others who God is like how merciful and gracious and compassionate and forgiving he is. How much he loves us. So we look back now, beyond, still in Matthew 5, but let's look back to the broader context of what's happening. It's not just about loving your enemies. When, sometimes it's as easy as just looking at chapters. Sometimes it's not. And this is one of those cases where it's not. In the beginning of verse 17, Right? And I quoted this a few weeks ago. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then from that point forward, if you have a good translation that shows these paragraphs, I shouldn't say good, they're all good, but if you have a more literal translation, you'll see these paragraph headings, and it will say things like, you've heard it said this, and then Jesus clarifies something different. So you look at the first one, is anger. You've heard it was said, you shall not murder, right? But then now what we learn as we think about this in the context is you used to live this way. Now you, have been, or you are about to in this context for us now. Now we have been given the Holy Spirit so we don't have to live in anger towards those who wrong us any longer. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But now that you've been given the Holy Spirit, you no longer have to live in sexual impurity, but you can honor your spouse and you can lift them high and you can lift your own body and your own sexual purity high. It was said, whoever divorces their wife, but, but now you can honor your spouse in a way that elevates them even when they make you angry. Here's a little marriage tip. This one's for free. Not that I have anything worth saying, but it's from the Bible, so it's okay. It's not me, right? Is the simple reality of this is most often when we get mad at our spouse, it's really our issue, not theirs. That's almost always true, that there's something going on in our hearts. You look at oaths. You've heard it said of old, you shall not swear falsely. And, and now we've been given the Holy Spirit so that we don't need to swear, but we simply can be people who live by the word of what we speak. That we are honorable in the way in which we live. Retaliation. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye, for tooth for tooth. Now you've been given the Holy Spirit so that you can rest assured that he will do what is just and right. 
and you don't need to take vengeance. But you can leave that for God. All through this Matthew 5, it's all about here's how to live in the way in which the Holy Spirit indwells you so that you can actually do what I'm calling you to do. Let's look back again. Verse 20 says this, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's never about our ability to follow the law. It's about Jesus' ability and him being our substitute. Our righteousness will actually exceed that of the Pharisees if we live in the power of the Holy Spirit because he will equip us to do what they could not and what we cannot apart from him. That's what it says to us. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-six, we read uh, a lawyer who questions Jesus and he says this, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This sums up everything. And you are now, if you have the Holy Spirit, you're equipped to do that. You're equipped to love God the way that God deserves and is worthy of love. And we're equipped to love one another the way that they deserve and are worthy to be loved. Again, not because they have something awesome in themselves, but because God has created them in his image and he loves them. And so we are called to as well. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 4. So right near the end of your Bible. We read this in verse, uh, start in verse 16. 1 John 4, 16 to the end, it says this. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not, sorry, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. We have been equipped to love that way because the Holy Spirit is within us. I use this verse a lot, but I think it really just explains this so well. As Jesus says in Matthew five sixteen. in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Who gets the glory? Your Father in heaven, not you. So when people see you, when they see you and they go, that person, they used to be this, but now they're this. And they don't give you the credit, they go, there's no way that that person could change like that. Something has done this. Something different than them. And then the way in which we act and the way in which we live, when they see our deeds, they won't go, wow, Greg is such a good person. They'll go, look at what God can do and how he can change a heart and change someone's way of how they live and what they do. 
Michael J. Wilkins sums up this section perfectly for us, this, this question about being perfect. He says this, As Christians seek to live in conformity to Scripture, they are in fact pursuing the very perfection of God. This verse provides the conclusion and summary to the antithesis section, showing that all of the law and all of the prophets find their perfect fulfillment in the perfection of the Father, which is what all Jesus' disciples are called to pursue. So you are called to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, not in the sense of if you're not, you will not go to heaven. That's 1 John 4 saying, if you have fear about that, then you don't understand the gospel yet. Not, not quite anyway. Rather, we look at this, we look at Scripture, we read and we go, God has called us to live differently, but not out of my own ability, but by His imputed righteousness that He has given to me. And so that the Holy Spirit now equips me to do what I cannot do. And so you, Christian, are called to live in the power of the Spirit. To let go of your own selfish, our, our own selfish desires, our own wants, and to say, God, I will do what you call me to do. Would you give me the strength in the Holy Spirit to do what is right and what you have called? We are equipped uniquely to do what we cannot do on our own. That's the best news ever, isn't it? God hasn't said, go be perfect, and then just to watch you fail. He said, go, be perfect, and let me do the work in you so that others would see your good deeds and give me glory. What a wonderful statement. What a wonderful verse. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you. It seems bizarre, but thank you that we are not enough apart from you. Because we can simply just admit that and recognize we need you. Then we can let go of our pride and our own stubbornness and our determination to try and prove something which cannot be proved. God, thank you that you have called us to a standard that we can't live to on our own so that we can see that you love us so much. You want to equip us to do that very thing. God, thank you that when we come face to face with you and we submit our lives to Christ, that you give us the Holy Spirit. And that we are new. We no longer have to live in our own sin, in our own desires, our own selfish ways, but that we can live for you. So God, I pray that each day, each day we would make these prayers, that we would say, God, fill me again with you this morning. Help me to see what you are calling me to do and equip me today that I would listen to you. And God, when we do, as Paul says in Romans 7, when we do give in to our selfish ways, when we do choose to listen to our own voice rather than you, may we repent of that. And may we dwell in the place where we know that you have forgiven us of those sins. And that even though we might feel guilt and shame over what we've done, we can know that you have forgiven us. And so we can move past that and we can enter back into that relationship with you the way in which you have desired and that we can glorify you by how we live and how we act. As the songwriter says, this isn't good news, it's the best news ever. Thank you so much for all you are doing in, us, in and through us. May you receive glory, not us, 
may you receive the glory from how we live and act because the Holy Spirit is at work within us. God, thank you. Go with us this morning. We love you. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. As, as Ernie mentioned, please feel free to go grab a coffee or a juice, and, uh, and Shayla will be at the back this morning uh, to serve you some treats, and, and just feel free to visit and hang out, and, and no one will ever kick you out. We'll just turn the doors, or turn the lights off and lock the doors, and then when you leave, it's, it's all done. And if that's at four o'clock, then so be it. We hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you again for joining us. Bye-bye.